We're continuing and are now at the third of four messages in Peter's sermon from Acts chapter 2. So as I begin, let me once again read the text and focus on the two questions that, that frame this passage. Um, and then we'll get into the third of the messages. I'm going to begin in Acts 2.12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
For the promise is for you and for your children and for all those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many words he bore witness and with continued, exhort, continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for the work of redemption. The work which you intended from creation as you proclaimed to Adam and to Eve that their seed would have his heel bruised, but he would bruise the head of the serpent. That there would be judgment and there would be forgiveness. And Father, we come recognizing this morning that the story is an ancient story. It is a story as old as creation. And yet it is a story with historical reality where you have accomplished the work you promised. And you've accomplished that through Jesus who both took our sin, paid the debt of that sin by his sacrifice and his loss, rose because death could not hold him, and has poured out your spirit on believers of all ages. And so we come this morning recognizing our complete dependence upon the work Jesus and the Spirit are doing. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would meet us in your word, that you would feed us spiritually both through the word and through the sacrament, and that you would equip us so that we might continue and carry on that kingdom ministry that you have been doing since you began creation. Lord, speak to us with clarity today. Convict us, equip us, and use us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, as we look at this passage, there are really two questions that structure the passage. In 2.12, as the as the people who have heard the gospel proclaimed in their own languages in a way that appeared to them miraculous, asked for clarity, what does it mean? Peter's sermon is an answer to that question. But then at the end of his sermon, the, the people who have heard what God and Christ and the Spirit have and are doing ask a second question, what shall we do? And so Peter is answering that the Spirit rules us. We've been using the word the last two sermons, that the Spirit bothers us. But I think that word is, is too weak, especially in light of the passage that we're looking at today where it speaks of God making Jesus Lord. The Spirit rules us and moves us to build kingdom. And that's what the disciples did following Pentecost as they spoke the message of the gospel to the crowds in Jerusalem. They spoke of the fact that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, gives us the Spirit. It says in um, verse 32, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, which is the bestowal of the Spirit, that you are seeing and hearing today. Today we're looking at not simply the idea that Jesus has accomplished the bestowal of the Spirit, but who Jesus is. What is it that the Spirit points to? What is it that the Spirit calls us to in ministry? And it's this sentence, 
in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. That's an amazing way for Peter to speak. He actually goes out of his way to talk about the certainty of our knowledge. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. God has made him Lord and Christ, which means anointed, the Messiah, this Jesus whom you've crucified. And so today, as we look at this passage, I want to I look first at the idea of God's work. The Jews had expected a coming kingdom, but they had a very particular expectation of what that kingdom would be. They expected the deliverance of the nation Israel, God's holy and separate people, to be free of the political oppression and the... the um, the spiritual oppression of the Romans, where they would again take that place of honor and power and declare to the world so that the world might in some way receive some benefit from the truth of the kingdom. But that's not the kingdom that Jesus instituted. And the Messiah, the anointed, and again, the word Christ, when we talk about Jesus Christ or Jesus the Christ, the Hebrew term behind Christ is that simply of anointed. And anointing is the, the specific action of choosing. So the anointed was the chosen to a particular calling or task. So when we talk about Jesus Christ or Jesus the Christ, we're talking about the man Jesus, and we'll talk about him in a moment, but we're talking about him set aside for a particular calling. And so whenever we think of Christ, it's not simply that that is a part of his name. It is a statement of who Jesus is. He's the anointed. Kings were anointed. Prophets were anointed. The Savior was anointed. And Jesus, the anointed, is anointed to Lord and Savior. <clears throat> so God... It's been at work. Peter's explaining what God has done. And so let me read again some of this that describes the work of God. <clears throat> Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God raised him loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then again in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. So let's take a moment and look at Jesus. Who is Jesus? Because it's easy for us to think, well, Jesus, yeah, he's the Savior. And have this sense of Jesus is an important person, but not really understand fully who Jesus is. Jesus is the one necessary for salvation. He's the man that the disciples have followed for three years of ministry. Jesus is the one they have known intimately. They walked with him. They ate with him. They listened to his teaching. They stayed with him. They watched his miracles. But for the disciples, in those three years, Jesus was a man much like you or me. 
He did remarkable things, but they knew him as Jesus, son of Mary and Joseph. Jesus began to reveal more and more that he was not just an ordinary person, and so they might have thought that he was a prophet. <clears throat> they might have thought that he was someone special. They followed him. He called, they followed. They spent three years of their life with him. But for the disciples, Jesus was somebody whose identity evolved. He revealed himself over time. And so one great example of the way that that evolution of understanding exists is the story of Jesus at Simon's house in Luke 7. Here you have Jesus, who's an itinerant religious figure, traveling around who Simon the Pharisee invites into his home for dinner. <clears throat> we get a little glimpse of what Simon's thinking as, as we continue in that story. And Simon thinks to himself, this man can't even be a prophet. So Jesus is somebody special. He's invited into the house, but as Jesus acts in Simon's house in a way that Simon doesn't expect, Simon begins to rule out the fact that Jesus is anybody special. Why? Because Jesus allowed inappropriate behavior to take place in Simon's house. Jesus allowed a woman who had not been invited to enter and to touch him. That's a social taboo. That, that was not acceptable behavior. And no religious leader up to the time of Jesus would have allowed a woman to do that. Because she wasn't his wife. And it was in public. Even if it had been his wife, she wouldn't have touched him that way in public because that's not what you do. This wasn't Jesus' wife. This wasn't anybody that Jesus knew. Except that, Jesus knew she was a sinner who understood that he was a savior. She saw what Simon didn't. In fact, she saw what the disciples didn't see yet. She came to that home because she recognized her sin. And she recognized the answer to her sin. And as that event unfolds, we see an evolution, a revelation of who Jesus was, because Simon says he can't even be a prophet. The disciples are a little bit troubled. But Jesus, in his confidence, receives this woman's attention because he knows that what it is, is worship. She's worshiping her Savior because she knows that he has saved her. And as we listen to the dialogue between Jesus and this woman, it becomes clear. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. And at that statement, everybody at the dinner starts to say, wait a minute, time out, this doesn't make sense. Who forgives sins? Well, obviously, the only person who can forgive is the one who has been transgressed against. Our sins are a transgression against God. Jesus, in his conversation with that woman, declares his deity. 
He's not just a man. Those sorts of events happen over and over again in the ministry of Christ. Jesus frequently reveals who he is in ways that if we look, we can't help but see. And so Jesus, Jesus is the man the disciples had followed. Jesus is the man that the religious leaders battled. In fact, they came to a conclusion that it's better for one man to die on behalf of the nation than for all to suffer. They didn't know what they were saying. They thought that it would be more peaceful and more safe if this political rabble-rouser was executed so that he could no longer cause problems. But the truth of the matter is their statement spoke a much greater truth. The Savior had to die because death is the payment for sin. Jesus is the man that the Israelites asked to be crucified. But as we step back and look in hindsight, we recognize that Jesus is God the Son who took upon himself humanity. And if we're going to understand what's necessary for salvation to take place, there has to be one person who becomes Jesus. Jesus is this person who contains the entirety of deity the second person of the Trinity, and complete humanity, together in one person, but unmixed. One of the ways that we tried to understand who the person of Christ was in in the development of our theology from Christ's life to now is, is, is Jesus two in one, or is he a mixture of two in one? Jesus is God and man unmixed. Jesus is fully man, which is absolutely essential if he is to be able to face the temptations we face in the way that we face them. Hebrews 4, he was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. Jesus had to be sinless, but he had to be fully tempted. If God and man mixed in Jesus, he's not tempted as we are. There's so much more to think and understand about who Jesus is, but but I want to move on because I think it's really important for us to understand aspects of who God made Jesus in the context of this passage. If you look on the front of your worship folder, there are several comments. And the quotes were chosen with an intent because I want you to hear Adrian Rogers' comment in the beginning, you don't make him Lord. He's Lord already. You just recognize it. And yet if you look at the third quote, the last line of that third quote reads, we either make him Lord of Lords or we deny him as Lord of any. This passage is clear. God made him whom you have crucified, Lord and Christ. The reason I make that point is because I think that as we understand the work and the lordship of Christ, there's a language problem that we have. 
But that language problem is actually a revelation of a heart problem. We speak of making him Lord. But he is Lord. If we look at our language, if we do a study of the way we talk about the Lordship of Christ, we find ourselves frequently talking in ways that communicate that we make him Lord. We elevate Jesus. Now, we might simply mean that we recognize that his Lordship is true in our lives. I make him Lord in my life. Okay, well, we may be meaning by that that I am recognizing and living in light of the reality that he's Lord. But the problem is, there is a subtlety in how we speak that reveals the reality of our heart. He is. God has made him both Lord and Christ. There's a compliance problem. And I think this is where we can see the reality of what we speak. Because we act as if he is an advisor who gives us guidance rather than a king who rules us. Think about that for a moment. If I make him Lord, I can unmake him Lord. If I, can, if I make him Lord, I can make him Lord in some aspects and not Lord in other aspects. If I make him Lord, then I can pick and choose. And there's an inconsistency in how I live. I think that's a prevalent attitude for us. Just one example. Are the speed limits law or advice? When it says 55 or it says 65, does it mean 55 or 65? Or does it mean if the cops are present, it's 55 or 65? Or if traffic is bad, it's 55 or 65? But, but if nobody's looking... doesn't mean anything. Red lights. One of the things that's really, really irritating <clears throat> is how we treat red lights. Anybody who's lived in this area for any length of time understands that, that there are the red light cameras. And see, a red light camera is a really helpful tool. I know that some of you may want to crucify me for that. I would stand in good tradition. <clears throat> red light cameras teach consistency. If a cop is present and you run a red light, they can choose whether or not to enforce the law and, and help you to understand whether or not there are consequences to submitting to the laws of the state. <clears throat> but if the cop isn't there or there isn't a camera, you can with impunity run a red light as long as you make sure nobody's going to T-bone you. It's advice. I remember watching movies about Japan and the samurai. And if a peasant disrespected a samurai, there was one consistent, immediate response. 
The samurai would take out his sword, cut off the head of the rebellious peasant, and that would be the end of the issue. There was consistency. If you were a Jew living in the promised land with the Roman soldiers, if you violated Roman law, there was the same consistency. There was no question what it meant that the Romans were lords. We act as if he is an advisor. We act as if we live with a cafeteria where we can choose between potential lords based upon what they offer us. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is Lord. I think part of where the dilemma comes in for us is the type of Lord Jesus is. Because the Romans were very consistent. Because of Jesus' servant lordship, we tend to think that maybe we're boss. Jesus is Lord who serves. And in the New Testament, we see that when Jesus is teaching the disciples what lordship means, he says, I don't want you to be a Lord like the Gentiles. I want you to be a servant leader. And so on the night that he's betrayed, Jesus demonstrates servant leadership after the supper with the washing of the disciples' feet. I want you to think of Peter's response, Peter who's preaching the sermon. Jesus girds himself with a towel, prepares to wash the disciples' feet, and Peter says, never! (laughs) Masters don't wash disciples' feet. Jesus looks to Peter and says, unless I wash your feet, you have no part of me. You need to understand, I am a leader who serves, and I'm calling you to leadership in service. You're apostles. You are those who have walked with me for three years, who are leading the church. You have a place of honor. I think when we get to heaven, we're going to see a position that the apostles have that recognizes the calling they experienced. And we'll see the honor with which they are addressed. And marvel. But it is a servant leadership. It is a servant lordship. And so it becomes confusing for us, and we have this balance we have to keep, recognizing that, no, there is no question that Jesus is Lord. That what he says is true, and that we are called to obey. Yes, sir. But we're called to obey out of love. 
And so I want to I keep in balance Peter's response to Jesus washing his feet, but also Job's response to God. So, so we tend to have this long passage as we read through the book of Job, and we think, oh my goodness, God is so unfair. How in the world could God say to servant, have you considered my servant, to, to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He set Job up. Satan says, well, of course he follows. You bless him incredibly. God says, well, you, you can take away the blessings. Just don't touch his health. Do you remember what Job loses? All of his wealth, that's enough to set us off, but he loses his kids. Job suffers tremendously. Job goes through the whole period of time, the second set of, of, of trials as his health is taken. He's, he's in misery. His wife torments him and says, curse God and die. His friends attack him and say, what sin did you do that God is punishing you? And he goes through this extended conversation and dialogue with friends who fail him. In fact, at the end of the time, God says, you sinned against Job. You sinned against me. Job finally gets to the point where God answers Job's prayer to come and speak with him. And do you recall how Job responds? Ultimately, a paraphrase. At the very end of the book, Job says, I spoke foolishly, and now that I have seen you, now that I have seen you, I recognize your God, and I am a foolish, arrogant rebel. No explanation. Job never hears of the conversation in heaven. Job simply recognizes the reality of the lordship of God. I don't need an explanation. You're God. I'm not. End of subject. Where we find it difficult is because this God who is God is so incredibly loving that he takes our sin. He removes our guilt. And the price we pay for our rebellion, he takes. And so the passage I want to leave you with as we conclude looking at the lordship of Jesus, because he's Lord. He is not an advisor. He is not... He's not um, a friend who gives you good counsel. He is the Lord of the universe who loves you, who has paid for your foolish rebellion, and who says to you, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. What I want you to think about this week as you look at this passage and as you think about this watershed event of all created history, 
is you ask yourself and ask God, what does it mean? I want you to be thinking about the fact that Jesus is Lord. And he doesn't give advice. He doesn't request. He commands. But he commands with an attitude that says, I want you to know my love for you. I want you to know that what I'm telling you is true and you must obey. But I want you to obey because you love me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so I want you to ask yourself, where is the battle in your life for who is in charge? Where are you most tempted to consider God's command a request? Where do you want to say no? And who do you believe by your actions is in charge? Let's pray. Father, we do come, and even the, the name you have given yourself for us, Abba, Daddy, can be confusing. You are one who loves us dearly. You have paid the debt of our sin. You have accomplished our redemption. You have placed in us your spirit, whom you have poured out freely. And I ask that you would work in us and in me in particular, that we would know you are God of the universe. There is no one whom you owe allegiance. There is no one above you. And so we come and ask that you would help us to see that dual reality of your power and your holiness and your transcendence with that additional reality of your love and your presence and your compassion. Lord, help us to recognize that you are one we must obey but you are one we are free to obey out of love. And as the quote on the front from Spurgeon says, it's what we want to do. Lord, please give us that love for you that moves us to obedience, a delighted obedience. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.